John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1081.MI0303, certificate number 32041. Ronco. After seven years of advertising my Ronco Electric food dehydrator and beef jerky machine, I've decided to drop the price. The new price is so ridiculously low, you have to watch. Ronco. Does that does that name mean anything to you culturally? Yeah, sure. It reminds me of the uh, scattered infomercial watching I did late at night in college. But when you were growing up in uh, Korea and Shoreline, Washington, and various spots in between, like Midway Island, yeah, uh, you didn't have uh, you didn't you didn't I, watch intro- infomercials. No infomercials. No late night TV on Korean television. Just um, just the normal weird length, uh, normal length ads for crackers that tasted like squid and stuff like that. <laughs> right, uh, we had those here too. But summer in the state, summers in the states, sometimes on my like grandparents' satellite dish, we'd flip by infomercials, and you'd kind of get sucked in a little bit. Yeah, I, you, you mentioned before we started recording that that watching infomercials all the way through seemed to you to be an activity that people did in college when they were high. Yeah, I was about, you asked me if I watched a lot of infomercials. And no. You were like, no, I didn't if you're, smoke if pot. You're, so. If you're sober, you do not sit and watch the end of the infomercial. You go past the infomercial and see what's on the other stations. It's funny because I get drawn into infomercials, not because I'm interested in the product, but I'm interested in the pitch or interested in watching someone make such a... Um, such a lot of effort to try and sell some Ginsu knives or whatever. He really is doing something. Most people in ads are not actually, they're not doing anything. They're not producing a product. They're not in the middle of an activity. Uh, they're not battling entropy in any way, but that's right. not true of infomercials. In infomercials, you are seeing, you're a fly on the wall for a project. Yeah. And they're often set in a, talk show environment or a cooking show environment it's somehow a talk show and a kitchen like who are the 800 people that are in the studio audience of a of like a, a vegematic commercial but they're so happy to be there they really are. like i have never seen an audience that primed to like anything can you imagine a live music show where people are as nuts as the people at a at a chopomatic my career would have been so much different and they all look like people that are actually like that you would see at a at a an Oprah show. It's not like they took a school bus down to Skid Row and gave everybody 20 bucks to, to come sit in a studio audience and, and applaud. There are a bunch of people that seemed like they lined up to be here. I've seen many a paid studio audience in LA and it's just tourists who got handed a thing at the corner of Hollywood and Vine and were like, Oh boy, a show not knowing what they have terrible experience they have signed up for. But the- uh, maybe it's something about the second person. It's very important to have a second person in the infomercial who tells you how to think right. about the situation and the product. Because when they're excited, boy, oh boy, is that contagious. They can't believe it. They really can't. And that makes you not be able to believe it either. Without her there, you would be like, do I believe this? I guess I do. It's on TV. Chopping onions is so much work, Ken. But I don't believe how easy it is now. You know what I think? I think there has to be a better way. <laughs> I perpetually think this when I watch something being done. I think... 
There has to be, a better, has to be a better this way. This can't be the peak of human potential and achievement. But you usually think, I'll hire someone to do this. <laughs> there mean, is a better way. I mean, honestly, that is what I think. <laughs> because I've seen myself try to change a shower head or whatever, yeah. and I'm like, it eventually got done, but it took six hours and two trips to Home Depot. And it really, it really would just make me happier if someone who knew what they were doing, someone who already knows the better way does it. Right. Chopping Watch- onions is so hard, but when Mindy does it, I don't even notice it. <laughs> yes, when I say hire, I mean just expect someone else in my household to take care of it. Well, there's something about the kind of direct marketing energy of uh, infomercials that's just just really distinctly American, and and weirdly, so much of the language of infomercials and the the products that are that uh, that first see the light of day in that as-seen-on-TV infomercial universe uh, have become part of just the, the, the lexicon of America. We all think of the, the, anything with omatic at the end, mm. um, all of, the, the, all of the, uh, the like act now, urgent pitch. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. If you act now. As-seen-on-TV. Set it and forget it. Yeah, it's a whole language. And a lot of this language comes from one place, and that is the Ronco Corporation. Is it really the Ronco Corporation? Well... It's got co twice. It's... it's, <laughs> it's or is it the Ron Corporation, like the Rand Corporation? It's uh, it's shrimp scampi. No, it's Ronco. <laughs> I, I want to start calling it the Ron Corporation. It's like the Rand Corporation, but it's just some guy and his lazy boy being like, well, we're never going to go to Mars. There is there is a guy named Ron. That's the best part. Yes. The Ron Corporation. And he's... Uh, it, that seems even way more sinister. Ronco seems fun. <laughs> Ron, I don't know if I'm supposed to be saying Ronco with like an NG sound or if is, is it Ronco? I say Ronco, but Ron? not Ronco. It's not Ronco. 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 I think you have to hit the N a little bit harder. It's you not do. Ronco. You do. You don't want it to rhyme with uh, Bronco. No, it's Ronco. Do you say Bronco with the with a little I don't implied say, NG? I don't say Bronco. No, I don't either. Yeah. That'd be weird. Yeah, it would be weird. It's bronk. Yes. Bronk. But it's not ronk. Okay. Uh, Ronco, I started researching to do, a, to, uh, to do an episode of Omnibus. I started researching a product that I remembered as being a kind of hilarious and interesting product what, what from my it? childhood called the Bone Phone, which was a... Uh, <laughs> Which was an AM. Is that a FM. euphemism? It's not. Hey, baby, you want to come talk on the Bone Phone? The Bone Phone was a uh, was a product from the very late 1970s. It had about a year and a half or two year run. It was a Radio Shack marketed product that was um, an AM FM radio, which were very popular in the 1970s. A transistor radio. Got to have your AM FM radio. But in this case, you uh, it was it was uh, packaged in a poly. No, what what is the material? It, it, the same stuff that you would put not in a wetsuit, but uh, but it's you know th- some of that miracle fabric that you used to that we saw so much of in the late seventies, early eighties that your your croquis were made of, and yeah, this kind of um, some stretchy polyester, yeah, stretchy thing. polyester, and it had uh, speakers in it, and you wore it as a scarf. And so you would turn the radio on and the... Uh, Wait, is this made up? No, no, no. It's uh, And it's Bone Phone with an F. Bone Phone. Why? Hold on. This is for people who want to listen to music and are wearing a scarf? Well, the, so, so the, the... I feel like most of the time when I'm listening to music, I am not wearing a scarf or looking to wear a scarf. The challenge of the transistor radio uh, was that it was... You know, the, the thing that was great about it, it was a battery-powered, handheld little radio. The problem was that it wasn't in stereo, mm. uh, which was the the selling point of FM, and also you had to it, you had to have it in your hand. It was um, it took up one of only two hands that you had half your hands. And if you were wearing headphones, headphones in the nineteen seventies were those big sort of space age yeah. moon bubbles, and so they would it made it difficult to do physical activity. Big headphones were great if you were on roller skates and wearing short shorts and, and on, in, in Venice, California. This seems very specific to a, a metal picture of yours. <laughs> but, if, like, for instance, if you were in the Dire Straits video Skate Away, uh, big headphones were great. But if you were skiing or if you were 
doing some other kind of, you know, real physical activity, jogging, for instance, a big set of headphones uh, weren't going to work for you. Sure. And so the idea of the bone phone was it was a wearable stereo. This is for people who want to jog wearing a scarf. They want to jog wearing a scarf. Or, you know, and I think it, I think skiing was where the bone phone originated because the... the uh, is this a thing? You're doing a winter sport and you want to have a, a soundtrack? It never was for me because I love the sound of the, the sure. quiet Isn't animals. Isn't that why you're out there? People love to ski or do any activity. People love to sit at home and talk to their spouse with a head, set of headphones on and actually listening to something else. You want to be out there and you want to hear the the chittering of the snowy owl yeah, and the, the peeping owls. of the voles? But you want to hear voles. When, when, uh, when the Sony Walkman came on the scene, it really changed the way uh, people skied. They put the headphones on, and then you could ski to Bohemian Rhapsody instead of just the sound of yourself panting. Is that safe? I never know if I should let my son have, like bike with his earbuds in. Or... I am a, someone who comes out pretty strongly against headphones most of the time because I feel like it's not only not safe, but it's like it breaks the social compact. Yes. A lot of people fight me on that because headphones are great for them. And it's just a difference, I think, in... Some people don't want to live in the world they're they in. They just want to see the world burn. They want to fly off into their magical space where the, where where the music Mac is playing. The McElroys are talking to them. The first time I ever put on headphones and walked down the street, I was in sixth grade, and I couldn't believe it. It was fantastic. I'd never had the experience before of, you know, stereo, and I was listening to the Beatles' Blue Album on cassette on a brand new Walkman that I'd... Uh, that I just bought. It was 1980, probably. And I, I, it was magic. Just blew me away. You're a movie character. You have a soundtrack. Yeah, that's right. Everything now is animated to this, you know, to like, I am the walrus. I mean, wouldn't you want to live in I am the walrus all the time? You give everything a beat. It's like the scene right. in Baby Driver where the world becomes choreographed to your private soundtrack. And the problem for me was that the first time my Walkman ran out of batteries, I realized how expensive batteries were and I didn't want to, and I immediately realized that the whole thing was a scam. It was not worth it. It's a scam. It was not worth music, it. Pop music just exists to sell you batteries. It's just a battery scam. <laughs> Rod Stewart owns big battery. But there, are, you know, I have this encounter with people every single day, even now during the quarantine. You're walking down the street, someone else is coming the other way. When you get within that 15 to 20 feet away from the person, I go, hey, how's it going? You know, hi, nice day. And the person gets that irritated look, pulls one headphone you, slightly you out. You have to slightly tip your head. Yeah. To pull the headphone kind of half out and goes, huh? And you go, never mind. My son does this to me in our house yeah. six times a day. Huh? What? And it's like, you know what? You're in the world. I'm in the world. But you're not in the world. You're in your own world. And so anyway, good luck. Like, God bless. I didn't have anything important to say, but somehow this, which for thousands of years has been like a standard human encounter has now been made awkward. And I feel like an idiot, but the bone phone predated this. Like it was the first time anybody had. So the bone phone was basically a scarf that had two speakers in it and it sat around your shoulders so that the two speakers were behind your ears and pointed up. But behind your, your ears are cupped to not hear sound coming from behind them. Yeah, but the the effect was, I mean, this isn't the greatest stereo you ever heard, but it was a form of stereo that was hands-free and also you could still hear your environment around you. Right. The thing that was faky about the bone phone was that it was sold, the reason it's called a bone phone, it was sold. Yeah, why is it called a bone phone? Scarves don't have bones. It was sold according to the premise that the sound was not being broadcast from the speaker's but was actually vibrating through your bones. This is like the Partridge Family episode where they can hear radio in their teeth fillings. Right. Like uh, like Lucille Ball said used to happen to her. Yes, except this was going to... The, the bone phone was a magic device, and it was going to vibrate the music through your bones. You were going to hear it in your... In your skull. Skull, and it was going to sound not like the artificial sound of music coming into your ears through headphones, but the very natural sound of music in your bones. What if I often go to a rock show and think, what if I was the amp? Yeah, right. That's what, what if, I want to know. But you do feel music in your body. Sure. The thing is, what you don't do typically is feel music through your clavicles, <laughs> which is the only way you could conceivably be hearing You this. couldn't attach the scarf to other bones? Uh, well, you could. Your femur is just further from your ears. I mean, you I could guess. wrap it around your waist, still not where you normally hear music. 
and that might even cause you to ha- that if somebody put the brown sound on you, you you wouldn't want to ride the bus. You might never have children. Um, the bone phone was a was a, like a a thing that you saw for sale in Radio Shacks for a very brief period, nineteen seventy nine to nineteen eighty eighty one, and when the Walkman came out, what it did was effectively. Um, it bankrupted its inventor, Robert Phonebone. Bone, <laughs> bone, bone phone. What changed was up until 1980, if you were out in the world, in your car, in your in a park, you had the option of an eight-track tape player. And I had one of those, too, a little cube, a little, a little bright red cube yeah. that you could put an eight-track in and listen to. Was it built into the dash or did you just buy the... Uh, no, I had one in my car, but no, this was a this was a portable thing. All those things, um, you can just picture people in uh, on a picnic blanket spread out in front of their Chevy Stepside pickup or their Dodge Little Red Express, drinking uh, Kurs and um, wearing wearing short denim shorts, Daisy Dukes. Maybe I'm expressing more about myself than I need to on yeah, this show. Why do all these memories have short shorts in them? <laughs> it was... They're very instrumental in my childhood. The bone phone was blown out of the water by the Walkman because everybody, it's much better to have a cassette tape on your, and and headphones. Bone phone blown by phones. Investors moan. (laughs) But uh, in researching the bone phone, I was. That's another euphemism. I was reminded. What are you doing tonight? I'm researching the bone phone. Researching the old bone phone. Don't give me a call. I was reminded of Mr. Microphone. And ah, that I remember. Mr. Microphone was a uh, a, a very a microphone shaped, very small sort of FM uh, transmitter, and you could. It was marketed as a toy, wasn't it? It was a toy. You could. You, it was basically a, a karaoke device yeah. um, that you could tune your FM radio to a certain station and tune the microphone, and then you could broadcast over the radio. It was actually sold at one point. Um, with a kind of cheeky, there was a cheeky commercial where a guy in a car, a convertible, had a Mr. Microphone, and he drove up on some girls listening to their radio and kind of hijacked it with his microphone and was like, I'll be back to pick you up later, baby. Could you do that? You could you could take over the airwaves, Max Edrum style, with Mr. Microphone? If you were <clears throat> 15 feet from the radio. I mean, there, <laughs> there uh, it was not like a very powerful transmitter that's actually closer than i ever was to girls at that age so it would, it would not have worked for me and i feel like we all at the time wanted to do a kind of brady bunch with it and uh, on the other side of a curtain take over your little sister's radio and say <laughs> oh monster is coming for you and your little sister would get scared it never really worked that well mm. but what i learned was mr microphone was actually a ronco product and ronco <clears throat> is a name like Ktel uh that is in my head as um one of the pillars of American civilization from from the standpoint of a of a kid growing up in the 70s watching television cuz you don't really get a sense of uh who the Dow Jones industrial average actually is right you think i just showed your daughter this um this picture of uh, the Nestle Quick Bunny who wants you to drink chocolate milk very fast yes she had no idea who this was but like i i probably could recognize the Nesquik bunny at that age faster than any actor or politician. Now, when you think about it, the Nesquik bunny and the, the tricks bunny. Are they friends? Are they related? How many different rabbits are there that are pitchmen for products? An awful lot. Why uh, do we go to rabbits? I don't, I don't know. They're so, they're so sexual. I guess so. Chester Cheese is a cheetah. Yeah, he's not a rabbit. Common misconception. Um, are, you're positing there are a lot of rabbits, and I can only think of these two. Are there tr- other spokes rabbits? Tricks and the and quick. And you know, rabbits are associated with eating healthy food, vegetables. We call rabbit food salads, and yet these rabbits only like sugary junk food. I mean, you've got Bugs Bunny. You've got the Playboy Bunny. That's true. Um, you've got the Duracell Energizer Bunny. Oh, you're right. He, and that is sexual. He keeps going and going. He does, right? I mean, like there's, um, why don't we call hip-hop hip-hop? I think that you have to say that that's- That's from that, rabbits? That's rabbit related. Really? You're, right? 
your your assumption <laughs> is that hip hop culture, all of hip hop, has been appropriated from rabbits. Yeah, is a rabbit rabbit derived culture. Were they white rabbits like uh, like Eminem? Uh, you mean white rabbits as referred to by Jefferson Airplane? Yes, or Lewis Carroll. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think you know, I think they were rabbits of all shapes and sizes. Okay, they were bunnies. 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 Uh, they could be brown bunnies. MC then. bunnies. Um, I do not think that hip hop has anything to do with rabbits, as far as I can tell. Okay. Well, you're the expert on hip hop on this program. Uh, but, <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here. But uh, but I quickly I quickly got off the bone phone. <laughs> Is that another euphemism? And on to the the magical world of Ronco products. Yeah. Let me give you a little bit of background on Ronco. Sam Popiel was a was a Jewish guy in New York City in the early part of the 20th century that was a pitchman and uh, someone, you know, selling products to department stores and kind of, yeah, there was a... Oh, yeah, that's a thing. Like yeah. in old TV shows, some guy will set up a little card table and he'll try to get the store to buy some little gadget. I mean, if you go down to Canal Street now or sure. anywhere in New York City, there's always somebody set up with a, a little crate selling sunglasses or scarves. No bone phones, as far as I recall. Right, I keep listening to the scarves, and they refuse to play Fleetwood Mac. Uh, umbrellas, often. Uh, as soon as it starts raining, all those guys get rich for for twenty minutes selling the the world's cheapest umbrellas. I just like airbrushed paintings of like maybe John Lennon and nine eleven. Mm. Do they ever mm-hmm. have those? Mm. No, it doesn't mm. have to be in the same painting. Those could be two different paintings. All of the musicians that died when they were twenty seven, all playing pool together in heaven. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's a you know that's an ancient art, right? The art of the pitchman or somebody that's going to kind of say, "Hey, sorry to stop you for a second, but have you seen this amazing nonstick pan or this knife that can cut through rope?" Or uh, uh, he would do it directly to the consumer, also. Both things. I think if you are in this, if you're a salesman, you are working all the time to to put food on the table. And if we go to the if we go to the Washington State Fair, there are huge halls full of people that are trying to sell vacuum cleaners and uh fertilizer and I mean every kind of thing. Uh I never go to that part of the fair. For the for the most part we think of um, consumerism or of, of the marketplace as a place that we go to looking for a thing. And people treated it as entertainment for a long time. I am annoyed when people try to sell me things because a culture has built up insulation around me so I don't have to do that. Right. But back then people would be like, yeah, sell me something. Come sure. to my door. Tell me about these encyclopedias. It's kind of the capitalist, um, the, like capitalism at its most basic, which is you're sitting on an overturned log uh, whittling, waiting for your pot to boil and a guy walks up and goes, you know what's better than that log? A chair. And you go, a chair? There's got to be a better way. Wow. Tell me more. <laughs> There's a video of some guy looking at like wood indentations on his butt. There has to be a better way. The funny thing is on vacation, we still enjoy the experience of, you know, if you feel you're somewhere exotic, you're at some kind of bazaar or souk or something. Right. Then you expect there to be a lot of hubbub and 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 commerce and people trying to sell you on things and haggle. And you're like, oh boy, I wish we had this. But in, back at home, you would do anything to avoid that experience. Well, and I do anything to avoid it when I'm overseas too. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want to buy your magic spice. And it's and it comes from having bought things in a souk and bringing them home to America. Like, wow, look at this amazing thing that I got in the, and it got in a secret corner of Marrakesh. And then, you know, your friend is like, oh yeah, I got one of those too. Just the, Google it. Yeah. It's just like right here. I remember the first time I saw some East Asian market, Southeast Asian, maybe they had made a, they had figured out a way to take uh, pop cans apart and turn them into little helicopters, Hueys. Have you ever seen this where they'll just take an empty pop can and yeah, right. turn the shell into armament? And the first time I saw one, I was like, what an amazing piece of art. This should be in a museum. And then, of course, all I had to be was in a place where there were 10 blankets in a row with people selling those. And you realize, oh, now that I know it's an industry. Yeah, it's a whole it's, thing. It's ruined for me. The, the great thing about pop can art in Southeast Asia in particular is that, that pop cans are used for a lot of things, things that you don't see. This is true in Cuba, too. If you lift up the hood of one of those beautiful 1950s cars that still are driving around Cuba. The last cars ever to get to Havana. Yeah, you, like, you realize that a lot of times their carburetors are just made out of Coke cans because everything, you know, all the parts broke and eventually, that, you know, shade tree mechanics worked out solutions. 
any Vespa that you buy that claims to have come from Vietnam, oh, there are a lot of Vespas in Vietnam, you know, more Vespas in Vietnam than anywhere sure. outside of Rome. And a lot of them are getting imported to the United States because they're ama- they're beautiful. You know, they're Vespas from the 1960s. But if you chip the paint away, you realize that a lot of them are made out of Pepsi cans. Like even the, the, uh, the whatever, the chassis itself? Basically everything. I mean, they're, they're, Vespas are, are uh, like a, a uniframe, unibody, mm-hmm. right? So that it has to have some structural integrity. But you have to be very careful of buying a Vespa, an imported Vespa from Vietnam, because they look beautiful, but they're made out of Coke cans. Which is a little bit true of the products of Ronco. Uh, what, what made what made Rom Popiel different from your typical pitchman was he was also an inventor. And um, you often see inventors, you often see uh, television pitchmen presented as inventors, and usually they're not. I mean, even Edison improved upon a lot of inventions that we credit him with inventing. You know, the electric light was really Edison just kind of monkeying with uh, some known technologies. Some known technologies. Ron uh, Popiel understood his um, his world and invented invented things that were easy for him to sell that helped uh, that helped in the kitchen. Ron invented the um, the sliceomatic, the vegematic, the dialomatic, all of these just pretty simple little devices, and the ingenuity of them was that they could do a lot of things. They could, I mean, basically they were variations on a knife, but, but, uh, but designed and sold in such a way that they were, they, the selling point was, this is going to save you time. This is going to, this is a safer and more efficient and, and faster way to turn a potato into French fries. You thought you could live without it. But let me show you why. Lots of 20th century American commerce is built on this idea. And specifically, it's a little bit gendered. It's men promising women that their day is about to get easier. A lot easier. You're trapped in the kitchen, but wait, you could have this dishwasher or... And was the stuff good? Like, I I never know watching these infomercials. I always get the sense that it must be a con or else these would be sold in a real way. Like, that's it's the fundamental problem I have with this with this kind of uh, sales thing is that if this was actually good, um, these would be in target. Well, and that's the, the interesting thing about direct marketing and how it coincides with the rise of television, because, you know, if you, if you invent a slicer dicer and you want to sell it at a competitive price and you want it to be in target, um, target's going to take half your target's going to take 80% of your money. Right. I mean, the, the, the profit margin of a slicer dicer, particularly if you're selling it for 1995, isn't that great. What what uh, what happened in a, in American television land, and and this is also going to be a future episode of Omnibus. It's been on my list for a long time. But the uh, television stations used to sign off at the end of the day. They would they would uh, show a little tape of a American flag waving. And, um, we should do that at the end of every omnibus. Yeah. The well, play the national anthem. In fact, in fact, at the end of my show Roadwork, we do play the, play the national anthem. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. You've never listened to an episode all the way through. I apparently never got to the end. <laughs> I assumed they just kept on going. The episodes? Yeah. yeah they kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, this is an episode of Roadwork that I'm, I'm still talking from three days ago. Where's Dan? You're Dan. I'm Dan now. Yeah. You fell into a swimming pool and you're not going to remember any of this. <laughs> um, but there was at the, uh, in the later hours of television programming, there were all these advertising spots that uh, television advertisers recognized that there were hot spots that, that they could charge a lot of money for, right? If you, if you wanted to advertise your Pontiac dealership during the nightly news, uh, when viewership was high, that advertisers could charge rates for that. And, it, and during the soap operas at different things were advertised at different rates, you know, that sort of, that's a television advertising is a complicated algorithm. You'll have to take our word for it that there was a recent time when the local news was the, the best time yeah, to advertise your, right. your, your Buick dealership. Everybody turned tuned in and you had a captive audience, but during the late movie, um, 
you know, later, later programming that wasn't the Carson show. Time is cheap. Time is cheap. Cheap, uh, cheap all the way to being seven, eight dollars per minute of huh. television advertising on a lot of stations. And so this was, um, this was a geography that was ripe for exploration or, or for, um, colonization. <laughs> right. Uh, most, most Pontiac dealers didn't want to spend any money advertising Pontiacs to whatever reprobates were up drinking bathtub gin at 11 o'clock at night instead of asleep with their wives, like good Americans. Like good Pontiac customers. And so we're, we're accustomed to seeing stranger local businesses advertising later at night. I remember- Guys with crazy in their name. Yeah, that's right. And not, I mean, Crazy Eddie became a big, big thing. But yeah, the guy that had the head shop or the- you know, the roller skating rink, they had ads on later at night. Because it's not that you're just getting a smaller subset of the same viewers. You're getting a different kind of viewer. Their defenses might be lower, for one thing. Right. Right? I mean, that's you're, you're paying a lower rate for maybe a more impressionable viewer. Well, and they have uh, their people that um, have different interests. They're not looking for um, a Pontiac. They're maybe looking for... Well, they may for, not have a job. They're, they're looking they're for watching, an escape. Yeah, if they're watching TV at midnight, <laughs> they, they may not have... They may have less disposable income. Sam uh, was fortunate enough that his son, Ron, uh, who grew up kind of at Sam's elbow watching the hustle bustle of street huckstering and um, and selling stuff to, to department stores... Ron recognized that his dad had come up with a couple of cool inventions. The uh, the dialomatic was a was a slicer dicer, and the dial on it was actually a, a selector knob for several different kinds of of different blades. Right? Basically, graters. Right? It was like a it was like a four sided cheese grater, except it was seven different styles of knife uh, on a on a rotating dial, so you could click it. And make julienne potatoes, or you could click it one more time and make string zucchini. Click it and forget it. Click it. Click it. Change it. Turn the dial. Turn the dial. Turn the dial. Turn the dial. And turn the dial was was the repetitive phrase. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of hypnotic state these turn information the try to put you in. Julienne potatoes. Turn the dial. Where the repetition alone like makes you do something you would not normally do, like dial a phone number to get a kitchen tool. Diced onions. Turn the dial. Ron uh, took some of his father's inventions, oh, including, quite famously, the pocket fisherman, which was uh, an invention that Sam, watching some kid on the beach, swinging his fishing pole around, knocking everybody uh, in the eye with his little lure, invented a, and this a pocket fisherman, I think I might have gotten one of these for Christmas. I don't know if I can picture it. It's a little sort of handheld plastic fishing pole that's about the size of a large gourd. Maybe not even a large gourd, a medium-sized gourd. Picture a medium-sized gourd. It's kind of it kind of looks like the um it looks like the end of a gasoline nozzle, you know, that you would go to the gas station and and the the little pistol-shaped yeah. gas nozzle. It looks like that. Does it open out or It has a it has a a a Real. Handle a reel in the middle. There's um there's a, a, a different compartments where your your lures and your weights go, and it's got a a trigger that that allows you to like catch the the cast, and you can you can fish with this little this little gun basically a little fishing gun fishing gun. Uh, it doesn't it you know it doesn't have a long pole. Attached to it, but it still works, and it still works. It's a, it's a. Have you used one? I have. You yeah, with a- I mean, it's not. If you you couldn't catch anything with it bigger than a little trout, I mean, I wouldn't use it to fish for salmon. But it was a novelty. It was kind of like the everyday carry people these days who have in their, you know, attached to their wallet a switchblade, a compass, uh, a match, you know, a, a, a some kind of. Flare igniter, uh, fishing line of solar 
station. I mean, all this stuff, you know, fits I have in a, your pocket. Now. I have a Swiss Army knife on my keychain, but as you know, it's like the biggest beta one you can get. It's yeah, the one it's that got has scissors. It's got tweezers and it's got a ballpoint pen. It has a pen? Yeah. Oh, how cool. Which I love. Like that's what you actually want sometimes, which is why I have this one, but it's the it's the most cucked Swiss Army knife you can get. Yeah. I carry a, a um one of those space pens in my wallet. Just in case. You have uh, to write upside down? Well, I do all the time have to write upside down because I'm often I'm often strung up by my heels and forced to sign contracts. By your enemies. Like the one that we signed with How Stuff Works. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> if only you hadn't had your space pen, we wouldn't have got into this. Uh, but the but so a few of these products, uh, yeah, they sold pretty well. And Ron... Were they already advertised on TV or had he, this is Ron's innovation? So TV advertising and, uh, and Sam Propiel, or I'm sorry, Popiel, Sam Popiel and Ron Popiel, all of, all of this was kind of, uh, it was evolving as it, as it went. And they Mm -hmm. were advertised on TV, but it hadn't become a, it hadn't become a nationwide enterprise. An art form. That's right. And, and it was Ron that incorporated Ronco. Or and, obviously, it would have been Samco, and he didn't do it in partnership with his father. His father and his father's brother Ray had a company called the Pro, uh, the Popiel Brothers. I don't know why I say Propiel. That's some kind of hair product, right? Uh, Propecia. Oh yes. Yeah. No, the Popiel, the Popiel Brothers, Sam and Ray, had a company that was selling his inventions. Uh, Ron started a new company. And licensed his father's inventions. It's odd. Uh, yeah, a little strange. I mean, who knows what's going on in the Popiel family? But uh, Ron, you know, really like boiled it down to the essence of the of the pitch, which was, as we've described, uh, he would come out and explain the problem, or or later on in his career. Another pitch person would would explain the problem. God, these onions are so hard to chop. Throw out my hands. And then Ron would walk onto the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ron Popiel, who became became a celebrity in his own right. But people already act like he's a celebrity before he is. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it's him. He invented the the and self fulfilling celebrity. And Ron also pretty good inventor of gizmos. Ron comes out and says, "Have I got a solution for you?" And then describes the the thing that Julianne's potatoes or the smokeless ashtray or the uh, or the pocket fisherman, and then there's the the urgency of the infomercial pitch. Act now, and you can get the pocket fisherman for only nineteen ninety five. Re- repeated urgings in yeah. that each one must be diminishing your resistance a tiny bit. And at one point, one of them is going to get you to the threshold. Call now, call now. If you don't call now, something bad is going to happen to you and your family. Call now, call now. You can be the one person that, that prevents the, and slightly amping up the reward, the, but wait, there's more. And then like you, you already think it's a pretty good deal and you're kind of wavering about calling and then they throw in something extra and then they throw in something extra and you're like, holy cow, that's, Three times as good as I thought it was going to be. And the, but wait, there's more is the key to, to his pitch because he gets you, he, he, he gets you to, to the edge. You're on the fence. You're like, what, what if I buy a pocket fisherman that will keep Loki from destroying the earth? It's like, yes. And not only will it keep Loki from destroying the earth, but. Sometimes they even lie about the price. You get two of those. Yeah, exactly. Like they'll, they'll tell you it's going to cost this much. And you're like, oh, I guess he keeps saying that's a good price. And suddenly it goes from 80 bucks to 25 bucks. And then you're like, well, now I have to do you it. You have to do he it. He literally just lowered it by 70%. It's only $40 shipping and handling. <laughs> uh, and this was a remarkably successful way of selling things. The Pocket Fisherman uh, at, at, a, at $19.95 sold 2 million Pocket Fishermen. There can't be that many Americans who actually fish. Uh it just occurred to me, by the way, that when Dan Aykroyd does the Bassomatic on SNL, it's just combining two Ron Popeil bits. It's the Pocket Fisherman and the and the Chopomatic. And it became that, that never occurred to me. The the Omatic, the the goofy sort of Saturday Night Live Omatic bits, mm-hmm. and and if you think about it, the Gallagher comedy routine of the the, the matic These are all references, like mid seventies references, to what had suddenly become a kind of ubiquitous. Presence on late night TV. Yeah, Matic was not a suffix. 
before then? Uh, well, products called Omatic uh, date back to the 1920s because it's basically just saying automatic. Is the Instamatic camera older than Ron Popeil? Yes. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, but there are a lot of things. You know, the, there was, I think, one of the earliest products was the oil Omatic. That was something that you you connected to your car or your um, or helped you oil your chainsaw. It, it was a it was a shorthand for anything that uh, that you were selling. You're selling efficiency the, and labor saving, right? On the strength of it being automatic instead yeah. of you needing to to take two extra steps. Automatic just means somebody is doing something is doing it for you, right? Uh, the some of the products that that uh, that Ronco sold the 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 chopomatic the dialomatic and the vegematic were all versions of the same kind of put a vegetable into this thing and whack it a few times into this plastic box and it's going to come out chopped or or sliced or um or transformed things that lend itself to a dramatic on screen transformation because that's how you're going to sell it like right. it's probably more interesting to watch somebody cut potatoes than it is to to try it yourself. Well, yeah. And just imagining, I mean, for me, it never occurs to me to make French fries because I don't like potatoes. But imagining, I, I I have started, since the quarantine began, I have started making a lot more food at home mm-hmm. and sitting with a knife and chopping things. And because this is not what I normally do, there's still the kind of novelty of like, wow. Because I worked as a short order cook in the early 90s and learned all of the ways to whack a head of cabbage and you know, chop an onion. Tomato, yeah. But having not done it for a long time, I don't have the the practice of 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 a fast hand with a sharp knife. And so doing it is fun. I I you know, leave me alone with an onion. I want to I want to chop this onion. It's um it's neat. But if I were doing it all the time, if I were making home cooked meals and chopping the onion was just a thing I had to get from one side of to the other, uh this little box that I mean, the thing about all these choppers is they never show somebody trying to clean it later. <laughs> and I think later on, one of the selling points was easy to clean. Um, but they are pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a ripoff. No, no, no. They work. And that's why they sold millions of these things. And the combination of that and the fact that watching late night TV, this sort of fun figure and, and television p- pitch people are typically, if you're inclined to think they're weird they're certainly weird but if you're inclined to think that they're fun they seem pretty fun and they're here to help uh another invention of uh of ron popiel was the inside the shell egg scrambler ron popiel apparently did not like to see an unscrambled egg because he thought the whites were gross i like how his neurosis leads to some labor-saving device that no one but him would want. So he invented this thing. It's kind of like what we used to do uh, to make Easter eggs, where you you knock a little hole in the end of an egg, but instead of draining it out uh, or blowing it out, mm-hmm. uh, his little device went inside and <laughs> scrambled the egg inside the shell. So you never had to do that terrible business of scrambling an egg with a fork. I'm not seeing it, but then that's the whole idea. You're buying a toy. Right. You're... You know, you, on some level, you think you're buying efficiency, but you're really buying a toy. And it's been, it, it turns food food preparation into fun, let's say, maybe. Does it turn it into fun preparation? I don't, it's a little bit fun preparation. It's pretty fun. Uh, the Showtime rotisserie was a kind of early, uh, like, countertop little rotisserie oven that you could stick a small chicken, little hen, or a... Or a small roast in there and watch it spin around roasting, which uh, I think probably the first time that you saw a device like that for the home counter, it made you feel pretty deluxe. It's anticipating foodie culture. Because at first, it's just doing kind of simple things for your casseroles. It's chopping onions or tomatoes or whatever. Right. But as as the things get a little more arcane and Baroque, we're really starting to enter an America where people do want to make more unusual foods at home. And as a pastime, not just as an hour you got to get through to get the food on the table before dad gets home from work. If you think about today, half of the things in a department store seem to be little devices to sit on your countertop and do some arcane food production. I mean, we... And people do buy them for fun. For sure. Like, my wife kind of fetishizes a good... uh, I mean, garlic presses you do use, but, you know, melon ballers and lemon zesters and, you know, things that are more fun to have for their weird specialized purpose than 
than are actually useful. But the machines too, like I, I, I was on tour many years ago with a, with a big shot English band that toured with their own chefs <gasps> and the chefs set up a juicer in the backstage area and they had a big bastic of uh, delicious fruits and vegetables. And so you could come in after a long drive and make yourself uh, spinach, olive oil, uh, yeah, and, uh, just a and chocolate smoothie, big fresh juice, and drink it, and you'd feel that immediate launch of sugar energy that comes from a big fresh glass of juice. And it just seemed like, wow, we're living, man. This is how you live. Every day you have a big glass of beet juice and lime, and then you'll live forever <laughs> and play rock music. It. And so I got one for the house, and then I realized uh, it takes three minutes to make the juice, one minute to drink it, and then 45 minutes to clean this freaking juicer. <laughs> but now here at the house, we have a one pot, which we use all the time. But eventually that one pot is going to get put away on a bottom shelf and we're going to forget it's there and we'll, and it'll be there for a year. There is, yeah, there is a, a little honeymoon period where you really use the sous vide a lot. Yeah. And then you kind of forget you got a sous vide thing. We have one of those hyper, uh, vegematic blenders that you can throw everything in. It's better than a juicer cause it, it uses the, the, the whole Buffalo. Um, and every once in a while we remember we have that and, and make delicious smoothies for a week or two and then sort of forget that that exists either. It's like really, the, it's really the gadget, uh, love that we associate in, in this culture more with more, more with men, you know, like right. really loving to see when James Bond's watch has a little, uh, fishing line in it or, or, or whatever. There's uh, a ton of that. And, and, um, there's, uh, another Ronco product was the solid flavor injector, which is basically a giant, everything here is a euphemism. It's a giant, uh, Hypodermic needle that you stick into your one kind of food and put in a different, inject a different kind of food into the middle. Why does this chicken not taste like kiwi fruit? Right. I want chocolate chicken. How do I get it? But the chocolate keeps burning. There has uh, to be a better way, Ron. Use the solid flavor injector. Uh, the smokeless ashtray was a great Ronco invention back when everybody smoked. It had a little fan in it that sucked the smoke away. Pretty nice. You can imagine, especially in a house where mom smoked and dad didn't. Yeah. The smoke, smokeless ashtray, pretty cool. That kept a lot of marriages together until somebody died of lung cancer. The first food dehydrator that was pop, uh, that was uh, popularized was a Ronco product in the 60s. Make your own raisins. And then some other things that we maybe remember and forget were Ronco products, like the rhinestone stud setter, the whole, the whole bedazzling of... Of have jeans you, and jean jackets. Mm. Well, that's that started as a Ronco product. Um, and uh, something called the Cap Snaffler, which was just a, a Dr. Seuss creature with, a thing that took gloves? caps off of bottles. It was apparently that was the they uh, they tried to popularize the term snaffle. I'm so tired of snaffling these oh, bottles come, on my own. Come on, There's you need be to a better way. snaffle this bottle. Hey, mom, can you snaffle this for me? Is the word snaffle ma a made-up neologism of Ron Popeil? I believe so. Do you want to look that up? It looks like it may be older. Snaffle? Yeah, I think a snaffle, a snaffle, it's a horsemanship term. What's, what, what's the word for it? Livery? It's, uh -huh. it's like a, a kind of bridle or something. Oh, but not a thing having to do with taking bottle caps off. No, unless your horse can open your bottle with its teeth. Uh, a product you might remember, the GLH-9... Uh, uh, GLH9 is that Wolverine's code name? No, GLH9 uh, stands for Great Looking Hair Nine, <laughs> meaning that there were eight prior Great Looking Hair products that didn't make it to market. Will I understand GLH9 if I haven't seen GLH one through eight? GLH, yeah, I think you will. GLH9 is hair in a can. Hey, I remember. <laughs> the, it's the, the aerosol hair. Aerosol hair. Uh, there are a lot of different kinds of hair in a can. One of them is just black spray paint. But this one had, did this one have um, body? Yeah. Did it, it spray fuzz it on your head? It sprayed fuzz. Yeah. It sprayed some sort of uh, baldness camouflaging fuzz. In the commercial, it looks pretty convincing in the infomercial. It depends, I think, on what kind of hair you have to start with. Yeah. Uh, and how much just spray, like basically Christmas tree flocking uh, in different colors is going to look like hair. But it, it, it's, it also depends on what kind of balding you are. Like, I wouldn't recommend creating a front hairline with it. 
It's it's for it, t- it takes a steady hand. Yeah, it's for uh, yeah. You need like to get some some uh, hip hop graffiti uh, nubbins for your can. It's for the the bald spot at the crown of the head, right? That's what right. they use on the commercial, right? And I often have thought, you know, with just the limitations of. 480 lines of resolution. I can't tell if this is going to look good or not. And I suspect not like that was the kind of, that's the kind of infomercial that makes me doubt all infomercials. It's a right. bridge too far. Right. It is a little bit unlikely, but it, de- you know, it, I think it depends on how much you're willing to suspend disbelief. There, And, are all- and if you're balding, maybe you have a lot more willingness to believe there are uh, having spent some time in florida over the years there are a lot of men wearing improbable hair and their uh and their elegant wives seem to turn a blind eye it's uh it's no obstacle to the highest office in the land now now um ronco was a successful enough business um that there were of course like innumerable imitators but uh uh a direct-to-market business that kind of came to um, that that was a contemporary of Ronco was a business started in the mid '60s by a guy named Philip Kynes uh, called K-Tel, oh, named the K- after his K for Kynes, his his K for Kynes, and K-Tel was similarly kind of uh, K-Tel started selling Teflon pans on late night television, and um, and KTEL started also to buy the rights to market some of the products of Sam Popiel and his son Ron. They worked; they were competitors, but also uh, in, uh, in certain products they were partnering. K, well, KTEL uh, would license the uh, the rights to market them in Australia, for instance. Um, the the feather touch knife uh, sold. $20 million worth of feather touch knives in the sixties in Australia, somehow feather touch really connected. And KTEL was the, was, was the company that brought it to market. So KTEL was doing a lot of this similar stuff and KTEL had, a, an innovation, which was in 1966, KTEL got into the music business they were selling a lot of uh, gim crackery up until this point, but they put out a compilation album called 25 Country Hits, and no one had ever done it before. They just went around to the music business and said, hey, can we license this one hit song by Glenn Campbell? And multiple artists on one 25 record. different artists on one record had playing never happened. 25 number one country songs. You'd think you would want that. It's similar to listening to hit radio. Well, people did want it. It was a massive hit. And uh, then they released their second record, 25 Polka Greats. And in... They're, uh, they're moving up to... In the late 60s. Having conquered country, they moved to the bigger market of Polka. 25 Polka Greats sold a million and a half copies. How is that possible? A lot of people in 1969 wanted to hear Polka music. A lot of people in Wisconsin, maybe. This was, um, this kind of changed the music business and, uh, Ronco got in on the act. Ronco then taking a page from KTEL released a compilation record called that'll be the day that spent six weeks at number one. That'll be the day. Is it it's old fifties yeah, Buddy Holly type yeah, stuff? Yeah. A compilation of, of, uh, of what we would. What, boomer nostalgia yeah, music? What, well, pre-boomer nostalgia, but yeah, like early boomer nostalgia. And it's probably whatever, it's probably a lot of one-hit wonders because you can get the rights. You're pro- you probably will not hear any Elvis on That'll Be The Day. No. You, but there's but, probably plenty of Jerry Lee Lewis. And that was the great thing about those compilation records. You're probably not going to go buy a whole Guess Who album, but you'd love to hear American Woman was the, was the, was the premise. And That'll be the day spending six weeks at number one in 1973 actually changed the charts in the sense that... They had to change the rules? No, yeah, they had to change the rules to keep compilation albums off the charts. So it was number one for six weeks and didn't fall off the charts. They changed the charts. It was ejected. So one day it was just no longer on the charts. It was ejected. That's like how the New York Times like was tired of Harry Potter at the top of all, the, of all its book charts. So it created the new children's chart just so that... Just to get it off, just of to there. get fiction back on the bestseller list, and you know, KTEL uh, dominated the music 
uh, what the the television direct to market music business. So these, so from the time they have the albums, they're already doing the TV ads that we all remember. With the, if you don't remember these ads, you know you can't show a particular artist. So it's often uh, kind of a a landscape or a scenic background while this endless parade of hits scrolls across the cre- screen like end credits. Right, and you hear a little snatch of each. And you think that's true. That is a great Kenny Rogers song. That's right. I mean, that's where, and we get so much uh, hilarious sort of proto meme culture from that. Like, hey man, is that Freedom Rock? I mean, that Freedom Freedom Rock Rock is just a compilation. The first album I ever bought was an eight track tape of a compilation called Studio 54. And it was all the disco hits. I saw this on television. On my little black and white TV, I was sitting in the kitchen. I remember it. I remember the commercial to this day, and it was like, you know, uh, Gloria Gaynor and the and uh, the Village People and all of the 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 early disco hits. And I turned to my mom and I was like, I really want that record. And she bought it for me, of course, eight track, the best of all formats. And I wore Studio Fifty Four out. Loved it. Now, I never. Signed up for the ten records for a dollar uh, version of of the. Did, did K-Dale have the of how Columbia House type gimmick? No, no right? the Columbia, was... Columbia House then then took it to the next level. Yeah. This kind of weird um, clearing house of it. Uh, Ronco made a ton of money selling compilation hits, and what this all produced was um, a lot of money for the Popiel family. In the case of in the case of Ron, he's still alive and still selling products on television. But now when he enters the talk show, he has a walker. Uh no, he gets he he's got like the fanfare of a conquering general. He's in his mid-80s. Like here he comes. Oh my god, it's him. Ron Popiel. His father Sam had a little bit more of a colorful uh later years sam um became rich from his inventions and his and the licensing of them he uh divorced ron's dad and married a woman by the name of eloise they he moved, divorced ron's dad he divorced very, or i'm sorry he, forward thinking. he divorced ron's mom and married a woman by the name of eloise uh they moved to i guess florida california they you know they were rich people one of those um they became estranged Eloise uh, started dating a much younger man who was kind of like a flight instructor type. Um, she was in her late 40s. He was in his mid-30s. And the uh, the two of them felt very oppressed by Sam Popiel's um, surveillance. I guess, they, I guess they got divorced. Sam Popiel, according to Eloise, was um, still a, a bad agent. Uh, although it was, I think maybe convincingly suggested that there was uh, there there were financial motivations to Eloise and and her boyfriend Dan concocting a murder scheme to kill Sam Popiel. What and just co- to inherit the the Popiel Empire? Collect the money, and they uh, Dan went to a couple of his buddies and tried to get him to I think at first poison him and then shoot him. Like Rasputin, you got to do both. Yeah, poison him and shoot him, and, or they they tried to poison him, but then they couldn't figure it out. John, when you're trying to kill Sam Popiel, there's got to be a better way. You got all this poison. You but, got all these guns. But wait, there's more. <laughs> they tried to uh, they tried to get their buddies to do this, and their buddies turned turned on them, ratted them out. Uh, they were there, there was a kind of a high profile celebrity trial. They were convicted of attempted murder, and um, Eloise went to prison. For a little while, but then, uh, uh, then later divorced Sam and somehow amazingly got out of prison and was granted two hundred and fifty thousand dollars as part of her divorce settlement. So, the two, the two universes were. Think how much she would have got if she hadn't tried to kill him. That's right. They were somewhat, uh, s- somewhat kept separate. I guess it's the difference between civil and criminal law. Yeah. She was she was in prison for 19 months and then came out and was like, well, I got the soft landing. But wait, there's more. Turns out uh, she reconciled with Sam and they remarried. <gasps> I 
I think I would have some trust issues at that point. <laughs> you She's and She's like, honey, I only tried to kill both. you once. Think of all the... Can we think back to all the times when I didn't try to kill you? Why do we have to... Why do we have to focus on that one bad episode? <laughs> but wait, there's more. No. Ron Popiel's sister, Lisa Popiel, uh, got into the music business, partly because I think her brother was um, weirdly a music mogul. Because of these compilation records? Because of these compilation records. And released a record called Lisa Popiel of her own, her own tunes. But she became kind of a favorite and muse of Frank Zappa <laughs> and sang on some Zappa tunes and, uh, and actually like sang with Zappa in concert. She would, she would wear a, like a lace teddy and join Zappa on stage as one of his vocalists. And through her connection to Ronco and the, the Vegematic and Zappa, she became part of Weird Al's universe and has sung on several Weird Al albums and has toured with Weird Al. Zappa is the rock star who's the most maybe novelty song adjacent. Yeah. So I guess that makes sense. Right. And he's kind of the bridge, the bridge between the between Saturday Night Live and Steve Vai. And so she's a backup singer now, kind of? Yeah, I mean a featured singer. She sings back up and I think probably steps forward at one point. I've never seen Weird Al in concert. I have seen Weird Al live and it's not it's not a magnetic fields type thing where uh <laughs> different vocalists take over different songs. It's usually it's usually Weird Al, honestly. <laughs> uh, and I think she does sing she does sing with Weird I think I think she sings as a backing like, singer. But but um but like duet type parts when when applicable? Yeah, like a like a feature, maybe not, maybe not duet as much as, um, what I, what I imagine happens is that Weird Al says, it's Lisa Popiel. Another one rides the bus. From the feet. From Lisa Popiel. Thing from the, from the Vegematic. Oh, do they, do they, do they play up her uh, Popiel connection? I can't imagine you're going to have Lisa Popiel on stage with either Zappa or Weird Al and they won't mention the Vegematic. It you, just you hear the name Popiel, and that's what else could it be? I mean, it's not a name that like immediately conjures Vegematic to me. But if you were, the thing is, backup singers don't always get sure the spotlight, right? You wouldn't. You might not know their names. Uh, one of one of her songs was called. Uh, one of her songs is entitled "Don't Turn Me Off and On," which suggests a kind of a kind of um, rotisserie. <laughs> I guess uh, innuendo as right. <laughs> I mean, you, you're the one that's been finding innuendo and in everything. Vegematic as sexual metaphor. Yeah. Um, there's a. She has a. Her the the lead off track on her record is called Primo Man, which definitely feels like a Zappa title. I feel like this has now become an infomercial for Lisa Popiel's music. <laughs> so how much would you pay for that? I'd pay maybe twenty eight dollars plus shipping and handling. But wait. But wait. What if we could offer it to you for a lot, lot less? Okay, she she sings on uh, on uh, Weird Al's song. Oh wait, Weird Al has a song called Mister Popiel. Oh, about infomercials. Yeah, and actually, Lisa's record featured Steve Vai. <laughs> so all, it sounds like all your favorite things are coming together. <laughs> this is this is very exciting for you. But wait. <laughs> There's not any more. And that concludes Ronco, entry 1081.mi0303, certificate number 32041, in the omnibus. Now, listeners, uh, if you've ever just sat around staring at an empty computer screen, writing down your random thoughts in a notebook, you've probably thought to yourself, there's got to be a better way. Let me suggest. Well, I thought to you, you were going to say that they they must have thought to themselves, "I could do omnibus." <laughs> have you ever spent eight minutes reading a Wikipedia entry <laughs> and then bought some podcasting equipment? Uh, no. Uh, let me recommend to you the social media matic approach: uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, each better than the next. You can find us at, at Omnibus Project. 
at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, respectively. Uh, there's on Facebook, there's a wonderful, I mean, Facebook doesn't have a lot to recommend it, but an Island of Sanity is the Futurelings, uh, who congregate there as well as on Reddit and possibly even Discord. Mm. I'm not sure because I don't know what that is and I've nodded too many times now, so I can't even ask. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com with your thoughts and, uh, and, uh, tell us your infomercial stories. Which of them actually paid off for you? Which of these devices fell apart the first time you used it? I wonder how many people are even right now listening to the show while they slice and dice. Yeah. Uh, you could, uh, you could even Julian if you wanted, but you'd have to hit that sucker just right. You can send us your used Ronco products. No, if you please, were, please don't. If you regret buying them, <laughs> please send them to John. He's already got a, what did you have? A one pod and a, a one pod. And a, a, you know, I'll never use my Instapod again. If you send me all your Ronco stuff, um, you can send those to omnibus project at PO box five, five, seven, four, four shoreline, Washington, nine, eight, one, five, five. Um, if you would like to support the show materially, um, basically, we do an infomercial twice a week. This whole show is half an hour of uh, content disguising the fact that at the end... We talk about Pepsi every time. <laughs> at the end, we just want you to pay $25 plus shipping and handling to patreon.com slash omnibus project. Again, $25 plus shipping and handling to patreon.com slash omnibus project. There's more. <laughs> Act now. Act now. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, and I do emphasize distant because human civilization shows every sign of flourishing and prospering for well into the foreseeable future. But we have no idea precisely how long our civilization survives. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>